You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. If a thing exists, someone somewhere is beating off about it right now. Balloons, swim caps, toothbrushes, toasters, socks, galoshes. Our erotic imaginations are voracious and unpredictable and random as fuck. There is no predicting what they'll latch on to. If a thing lives, someone somewhere wants to fuck it or be fucked by it. And a quote-unquote living thing doesn't even have to exist to be the object of someone somewhere's desire to fuck or be fucked by it. Aliens, dinosaurs, angels, 50-foot-tall women, centaurs. There are people who want to fuck them all. And Bigfoot, too. There are people out there who want to fuck Bigfoot or get fucked by Bigfoot, as we were reminded this weekend. Leslie Cockburn, a Democrat, is running against Republican Denver Riggleman in Virginia's 5th Congressional District for an open seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Riggleman, the Republican, has refused to disavow Corey Stewart the neo-Confederate, not-so-crypto-white supremacist who somehow managed to win the GOP nomination for the U.S. Senate in Virginia. Stewart, who has been endorsed by Trump, is so far to the right, which is cable news polite speak for so fucking openly and baldly racist, that the National Republican Senatorial Committee hasn't endorsed him. Denver Riggleman, however, has refused to say whether he'll be voting for Stewart or for Tim Kaine, the incumbent Democratic senator, and the former and kind of lousy VP candidate. And when Riggleman was asked whether he would campaign with Stewart or continue to campaign with Stewart, a man who thinks that anti-white bias is the real racism in this country, Riggleman would only say, it depends. Stewart's nomination for the Senate in Virginia, the nomination of a racist who grew up in Minnesota and won't shut up about his Southern heritage, that was news, but it wasn't big news. Maybe because he's not the only avowed racist nominated for office by the GOP's oh-so-economically-anxious base this year. As Jane Coaston reported at Fox earlier this month, in at least five state and national races across the country, the Republican Party is dealing with an uncomfortable problem. Their party's candidates are either a card-carrying Nazi, a Holocaust denier, a proud white supremacist, or all of the above. White supremacists and Nazis have received the GOP nomination in Illinois, Wisconsin, California, North Carolina, and Virginia. At this point, it's hardly news when a racist white supremacist or a card-carrying Nazi wins the GOP nomination. Their wins and the willingness of GOP voters to support these racists and Nazis is quickly becoming a dog bites man story or a dog Siegheil's man story. So it wasn't enough for Leslie Cockburn, the Democrat again, running against Republican Denver Riggleman. Wasn't enough for her to point to Riggleman's willingness to pal around with white supremacists like Corey Stewart. A GOP candidate being a white supremacist barely makes news. We've already got one of those in the Oval fucking office. But Riggleman is in the news this week, and we're all hearing about him now because Cockburn tweeted this out late Sunday night. My opponent, Denver Riggleman, running mate of Corey Stewart, was caught on camera campaigning with a white supremacist. Now he has been exposed as a devotee of Bigfoot erotica. This is not what we need on Capitol Hill. A devotee of Bigfoot erotica? No, 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 no. An author. 
Riggleman co-wrote the as-yet-not-released book The Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him, a book he promoted on Instagram with a censored image that emphasized Bigfoot's superhuman and super hairy endowment. Within minutes of Cockburn's tweet, Bigfoot erotica was trending on Twitter, and the following morning, news junkies got to read this hilarious paragraph in the Washington Post, and you're going to want to stick around for the parenthetical statement that comes at the end. Trust me. Here we go. The Bigfoot genre, a subset of pornographic literature called cryptozoological erotica, was in the news a few years ago when Amazon.com and other online booksellers began deleting so-called monster porn from their websites. Critics complained that the books featured rape, bestiality, and pedophilia. Some authors responded by changing their titles, toning down their descriptions, or labeling their stories adults only. Amazon currently lists dozens of ebooks with titles such as Shiver for Yeti, Where the Wild Things Ravish, and Bride of Bigfoot. Parentheses, Amazon.com founder and chief executive Jeffrey P. Bezos owns the Washington Post. Riggleman denies the book is erotica. He describes it as a practical joke. But the candidate should release the book and let the voters in Virginia's 5th Congressional District judge for themselves. Is the mating habits of Bigfoot and why women want him sexy ha-ha or sexy fap-fap? Let the voters decide. What is neither funny or sexy, of course, is that we know Riggleman's name. We know about this race now all over the country because he wrote some Bigfoot erotica. Not because he's been palling around with white supremacists. That, of course is the real scandal, and we should not lose our capacity to be scandalized by the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, and the Holocaust deniers that the GOP base is polluting ballots with all over the country. That is the existential crisis we face now, and that, not Bigfoot porn, is the real scandal. And speaking of books, today we turn to The Good Book, where we find... Something with the help of a guest that might disturb people who describe the Bible as the good book. Spoiler alert, there's an abortion in the Bible. God approves. Coming up, that's on the micro and the magnum this week on the Lovecast. Hey, Dan. I am a this female uh, living on the East Coast, 32. Been in a relationship for two years. And I have kind of a quick, easy question, probably. I saw a porno not too long ago that interested me, where a guy was going down on a girl using a lollipop and inserting the lollipop in her, putting it on her clit. Looked nice. I'm interested. But I'm also wondering, like, could that cause a yeast infection? Like, if I go for this, am I going to have some sort of bad health repercussion? Is this safe? Because I'm into it. Getting sugar in your vagina can screw up your pH levels and you can get a nasty, unpleasant yeast infection. So save the lollipop for before or after. He can eat your pussy candy for your pussy should be sweet enough for him as is. Don't mess it up by getting sugar inside it. And just as a a general note here, a, a general rule, I am opposed and I require all of my listeners to be opposed to incorporating food into sex putting whipped cream on somebody and licking it off. It sounds sexy. You've seen it in probably a couple of movies. But in reality, it takes about 30 seconds for the whipped cream to begin to melt, and then your partner smells like a baby puked on them. It's just not sexy. Chocolate sauce, mixing chocolate sauce in with it to change how that dick tastes, it just ends up looking. The optics are terrible. It looks like shit everywhere. It's not sexy in reality. Smearing food all over someone and eating it off is the kind of sexual fantasy somebody who is 
16 and doesn't have any sexual fantasies, pretends to have, so they feel like they're more interesting or they're self-conscious about the fact that they haven't discovered what their true turn-ons or kinks are yet, so they think about food. Sex, maybe the one thing we Americans are capable of doing, North Americans are capable of doing, without dumping sugar all over it and food all over it. Let's keep it that way. Hi, Dan. I am a 19-year-old gay man living in Texas, and I recently just started dating a guy, and I've normally been a top, never really bottomed. Um, I bought him like twice and haven't been a fan of it. I want to with this guy and I'm interested in doing it. We've tried a few times and he is a little bigger and both times I have been, and he's like super nice and patient with him and everything, but both times I've just been like having to like chill and like we've done foreplay and like we tried fingering and everything, but it's just very painful, but I'm like, I'm into it. Like I want to keep trying I was just going to ask if there's any suggestions you have for helping to ease it or get more comfortable with it. Again, like we've tried fingering and everything and like gone really slow and it's just like still is like really hard for me to like take it in. You say you've tried fingering and foreplay. What you need to try is fingering and whatever else you were attempting as anal foreplay as the main event. Anal stimulation coupled with some mind-blowing orgasms can create an association between anal stimulation and pleasure that's important and crucial and can help you get to his great big dick slamming in and out of your ass. If each time your butt has been engaged in play during sex, it was the intent of working his giant dick into your ass, that creates a certain amount of anxiety and tension. And learning how to be receptive in anal intercourse is about relaxing and letting go of tension. His dick makes you tense right now. You want to be on the receiving end of anal pleasure from him. And you should do that without his dick, without his dick, toys, tongues. That's it for now. Toys, tongues, orgasms, fingers, go get a couple of butt plugs, stick them in your butts and then have oral sex, roll around mutual masturbation, create an association and a powerful one between anal pleasure and and your orgasms, anal stimulation, and that kind of pleasure. And that helps. Also, get some different butt toys of various sizes, tiptoeing up to the size of his dick. And use those and play with those. Not with the goal, when you bust out those toys, that in 10 minutes his dick is going in there. But no, no, no. They are the end unto themselves. The end unto your end at that moment. You're going to play with those toys. You're going to roll around. You're going to do other things and get each other off in other ways while your butt and his butt are both in play. And then work your way up to gradually swapping his dick out for the larger of the toys that you two acquired together. Good luck. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a, a conversation with a very interesting person who did a very interesting thing. But first, and I apologize, we try to do this as rarely as possible i'm gonna to have to inflict a little bit of the 45th president of the united states on you for context do you want to see the court overturn Roe well v. if Wett? we put another two or perhaps three justices on that's really what's going to be ha- that's will happen and that'll happen automatically in my opinion because i am putting pro-life justices on the court Trump, of course, has appointed one justice to the supreme court to merrick garland's stolen seat to barack obama's stolen seat of the supreme court 
And he is about to appoint his next justice, a pro-life justice who will automatically overturn Roe v. Wade. So you, over the next few weeks, next couple of months, probably going to be having some arguments with Trump-supporting family members or pro-life family members. And we want to today arm you with an interesting angle on that argument, particularly with religious family members who oppose abortion rights. And joining us to talk about Something that I didn't notice the three or four times I read the Bible cover to cover is Jesse Kramer, a queer writer and storyteller who grew up in a devout fundamentalist Christian family, came out to his family in 2013, and then sat down and read and blogged the Bible. And we're here to talk about one of his old blog posts because I think it is hugely relevant. And I think it is a shock that I only learned about this reading a five-year-old blog. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Uh, It's going well. Um, So thank you very much for jumping on the phone. Why did you decide to read and blog the entire Bible? Okay. So uh, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian household, and I was the second of two boys in my family to come out of the closet. And uh, when I came out of the closet, it was very devastating for my parents to hear this. And so my mom, in the midst of an argument, said, well, just go read the Bible. Just go read the Bible and see what it says. And so I was like, "Okay, I will. And so I started at the beginning and read my way through the Bible in a year, blogging my way through just from the perspective of a queer person with a very fundamentalist background, just trying to figure out exactly what the Bible says. Quick, quickly, for people who want to, to find your blog, where can they find it online? What, what's the URL? Yes, yeah, uh, GodDoesn'tChange.com, and it's a year-long blog that I finished in 2014. And I wanted to talk to you about one particular blog post. You, you found reading the Bible that you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of anti-gay shit in there. That's what your mother wanted you to read. Uh, and you mm-hmm. you read that, you blogged that, but there's something else that I think is relevant to the debate we're going to be having over the next few months about Donald Trump's next appointment to the Supreme Court and the likelihood, the fucking fuck likelihood, the certainty that that will be the fifth vote on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And you stumbled over something or you, you, you found something, you read something that's just in there called The Test for an Unfaithful Wife. What book of the Bible is that in and what the fuck is it? Okay, so it comes from the Book of Numbers, which is part of the Torah and Jewish tradition. And it, uh, Numbers is holy, uh, just a lot of laws. That's really what it's all talking about there. And in this specific uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, it describes this thing, as you said, called the test for an unfaithful wife. And this is how it goes. If a man believes that his wife has been cheating on him, but, but he has no proof, that what he does is he takes... Uh, her to the priest. The priest takes holy water, dust from the tabernacle floor, and then he writes a curse and then wipes off the curse ink into the concoction and has her drink it. And then there's two possible outcomes. If nothing happens, then the wife is said to have not been unfaithful. She is holy in the eyes of uh, God and their marriage is fine. But however, it says that if her abdomen swells, causing her uh causing a miscarriage then that proves that the woman has been unfaithful and it's implied that she would then be put to death because that's another law that's mentioned as well okay but just to 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 like really draw people's attention to what's fucking going on here this is god's abortificant we're talking about here this is god instructing a man to go get his unfaithful wife an abortion in case she's carrying some other man's child Yes. So that's when I read it 
and those words that I just described to you, I immediately went, whoa, this is a biblical abortion that I had never heard of. And it's even further than what you think, because it's not a choice. This isn't a pro-choice uh, passage. This is a forced choice passage. It, uh, you, it's, it's a man forcing his wife to have, an abortion. to have uh, an abortion, to have an abortion. Now, I should say that, uh, as with anything in the Bible, there's a ton of controversy around what this passage means. Some, some versions of the Bible translate it as uh, the curse is uh, the, her thigh will rot. Another one mentions that her bowels will be upset, which, by the way, is also a side effect of medical abortion uh, medications, is, uh, is diarrhea and things like that. So it's just really interesting, and no one can really agree on exactly what it says, but I'm telling you that a lot of people read this and go, this is a biblical abortion. What what does the original text say? Does it say her thigh will rot, or does it say she will have a miscarriage? See, that's the thing. Is it, it's all, this is the problem with going to the word of the Bible? Is that so often you read like Jeff Sessions recently quoted the Bible defending that terrible family separation policy that all you know we need to follow the laws of uh, of the government, and that's the problem with whenever you point pick something out of the Bible and then try to justify it, is that. This was written in languages uh, and then translated and translated and translated. So, I mean, if you pick up any verse in the Bible, you can get six different interpretations of it. And basically, if one person has one agenda, they can translate it one way. If another person has another agenda, they're going to lean into somebody else's translation. And so if you want my like, what do you want me to know what what Moses wrote down for this? I couldn't tell you, but I'll tell you that. This is from the New International Version of the Bible, which is the most popular version of the Bible uh, translation. It's read by the most amount of people, and it's the one I grew up reading. But I grew up going to church every Sunday, Bible studies, a couple times a week, never heard this passage, never brought up. heard anti-gay passages once a month at church, but I never heard Numbers 5 in this test that ends in an abortion. This was never mentioned. There was no conversation about it. What was the reaction to your blog post about it? I mean, you say this is hugely controversial and much debated. How is it that we've been having a debate about abortion rights with religious conservatives for, as since Roe v. Wade, since 1973, and this passage has never come to my attention? If there's a controversy and debate about it, it's under the surface and hidden away. It just it blows my mind that – that the Torah, you know, the Old Testament numbers, it doesn't tell guys to take their wife to Planned Parenthood. You take him to the temple. The temple was Planned Parenthood back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and how how has this not been the subject of a great deal of attention? Not just debate and controversy in, in, in religious communities who obviously have a an incentive to cover up God's abortificant, God's RU four eighty six, the dust from the <laughs> temple floor and a little bit of holy water and some ink. How do we not all know about this? Well, see, that's the thing that I found throughout throughout reading the Bible, and this is, goes beyond just this um, entry I made and a lot of other controversial areas that I went into, uh, that people read, they, they read the Bible, they find the translation that best suits what their personal experience is. And I think that what someone can read this and go, you know what, I'm going to go read the King James Version just for this passage, because the King James Version says, her thigh will rot because that that gets me out of this jam that God the priests were the first abortion doctors. Okay, there's so many places in the Bible where this is true. The translation you cite mm-hmm. is 
considered yeah. to be much more accurate to the original text than King James, which engages in a lot of poetry. There's a lot of poetry in the King James Bible, which was commissioned, by the way, by James I of England. Huge faggot. So mm-hmm. the, the King James Bible that's beloved by, by so many Christians for its, its poetry and its lyricism, uh, a, a gay man caused that uh, uh, translation to be written. But the, the translation that you cite, mm-hmm. again, the name of that translation? New International Version. It's pretty much the standard version that I see read in churches across this country. And it's considered to be much more accurate, a much more accurate and faithful translation. Yeah. So if that one says miscarriage, then my money's on miscarriage, not a kind of poetic allusion to a miscarriage, which is what her, you know, a rotting thigh will be. That's just a delicate way of saying a bloody mess at the top of her legs, which is a miscarriage yeah. in this instance, in this context. Sure. Exactly. And I, I want to bring out something else because I was reading through, uh, you know, a lot of message boards where people are arguing about this passage. And then I stumbled upon Exodus. In Exodus, there is a, a passage that really implies that unborn children are not anything in the eyes of God. Uh, in Exodus 21, it tells us that if um, a man hurts a woman who is pregnant and it uh, it's results in the baby miscarrying, then he's supposed to pay some sort of fine. However, if he kills her, then he is put to death, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So her life is a true life. And is, you know, if you kill her, you have to die as well. But if you kill her baby, it's just some money. It's just some money that you have to pay. Mind blown. I was, I was, of course, familiar with that passage, but not familiar with the original Planned Parent doctor was a uh, priest down at the temple and that's where you went to get your if your wife was cheating on you abortion and you 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 know sometimes you have to accept the premise of your opponents when you engage in debate and argument with them with the whole like gay rights gay marriage debate sometimes like religious conservatives would say i oppose gay marriage because i believe it's sinful and you're going to hell and i would say to them so are the jews right in your belief and yet you're not arguing the jews shouldn't be allowed to be married can we get the same deal Sometimes it helps to accept the premise mm-hmm. of, uh, of someone else's argument to defeat them or to, to, to you know, show them the path out uh, from there. And mm-hmm. so you know, we don't have to debate, I think, abortion rights on religious terms. We aren't obligated to. But again, for people out there who are listening who have family members who, whose religious beliefs and religious opposition to abortion led them to vote, hold their noses in some instances and vote for Trump because they wanted abortion banned, I think throwing this little – number from numbers in their faces could be really effective. Yeah, and I, I also one point I want to make really clear is that conservatives uh, don't often believe in exceptions to their rules. They think that like everything is cut and dry, hard and fast. But the Bible is all about exceptions. You take, for, uh, for instance, uh, you take the thou shalt not kill, you know, <laughs> that commandment. commandment. And then in Joshua... The commandment, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And then Joshua, just a couple uh, books later, is committing a, you know, a genocide against the Canaanites to take back Jericho to kill man, woman, child, and animal. What happens to thou shalt not kill there? That shows that the Bible believes in exceptions. And we, for some reason, don't think that there should ever be any exceptions for anything. And that's just not at all, that does does not square with what I was reading or even what I was, uh, even in Bible studies growing up, you know, I, I constantly came across passages where it's like, well, what do they mean by this? And then some person would go, oh, well, you know what? We don't really follow that 
facts per se, but we just understand that it's like certain things we can understand in historical context, but not others. And that just didn't work out for me. The blog is goddoesn'tchange.com. The post where Jesse unpacks this passage from Numbers is Let's Talk About Abortion. Jesse Interprets the Law, Part 12. Just Google that. It'll pop right up. Jesse Kramer, he's a storyteller, playwright, co-founder of the Hot Metal Arts Collective in New York City. He's worked with The Moth, People's Improv Theater, Pete's Candy Store, Bramble Jam, and others. Thank you so much for digging into the Bible the, the way you did. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. I think you've blown some minds today in the same way that you blew mine when this first came to my attention. Hey, if you ever have any Bible questions, call me up. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> Will do. Hi, Dan, the tech savvy at Rescue. I'm in my mid-30s in the UK. I moved here a few years ago after ending a seven-year marriage on the other side of the world. Um, I didn't enjoy sex with my ex-husband, and we weren't sexually compatible at all. And it's only now that I'm single again, I realize how important sex is to me. Um, and I've also gotten off the pill after being on it half my life. I've now got a copper IUD, and my sex drive has really skyrocketed. Um, the reason I'm calling you is about someone I'm seeing now. I didn't date in my 20s. I had long-term relationships, and after having a few short relationships here exploring um, my new independent self, I've really started being more casual and I'm seeing a few guys at the same time, which has made me really happy. Um, my friends who know about my lifestyle are really supportive, except for one thing. One of the guys I'm seeing and the one I enjoy the most is in a long-term relationship and he has a one-year-old child. He's been upfront about this from the beginning. It was on his dating profile and that he's non-monogamous and um I found it appealing as I don't want to get into a relationship myself right now. He says that he and his partner have been together 12 years and have been non-monogamous for the last eight. And by the sounds of it, though, he does it a lot more than she does. Um, he basically said that because he has such a high sex drive, she's happy for him to get elsewhere and he works two jobs to support them. Um, we've been seeing each other now three months and he visits me a couple of times a week at regular times, but rarely spontaneously. The sex is the best I've ever had, and we laugh and have a brilliant time together. Sometimes we go out, but he mostly comes to visit me at my place. My problem my friends have is that they don't believe that his partner knows what he's doing, or that if she does, she accepts it rather than being happy about it. They think he's basically cheating on her, as he sees another person as well as me, and especially given he has a young child, that I should stop seeing him. All I have to go on is what he tells me, that he's been doing this for years, it's an agreement that he has. My friends worry about the effect that it will have on the child and I'm enabling this bad and potentially damaging behaviour. But the thing is, I don't feel guilty about it. I'm not asking him for more than I'm getting and I'd like to keep seeing him. If he did reveal to me his partner wasn't happy or didn't know what he was doing, I'd stop it. But all I have to go up what he's told me and I believe him. I trust my instincts but find it hard to defend myself against my friends who have real doubts about him and I'm feeling judged by them. What do you think? I think you should stop talking to your friends about this guy if you're not running around town with him, if you're not going out with him, if you're not socializing with him, if he has no cause to interact with your friends. You don't need to tell them that you're continuing to see this guy that they don't think that you should be seeing and are guilt-tripping you for seeing. It's often a problem when someone says that they're in an open relationship that the person to whom they're telling that has no way of independently verifying that fact unless they can contact the spouse and ask. And you could make that a condition of continuing to see you if you have qualms, if you are worried, if you doubt him. But it doesn't sound like you doubt him. You believe him. That doesn't mean he isn't lying. A lot of people are really good 
liars. A lot of people who are looking for sex, that's when they're best at lying. Great liars are incredible liars if it means they're going to get their dicks wet or their pussy stuffed or their asses stuffed or their throat stuffed. So just because you believe him doesn't mean it's true. And if you're worried or if mollifying your friends is really important to you, you can make a call to the wife, a condition upon continuing to see this guy or a visit with the wife. You say they've been in an open relationship for eight years and together for 12 and have a young child. She may be relieved that he's getting it elsewhere and she doesn't have to put out if him getting it elsewhere doesn't take him away from his duties, his shared responsibilities to raising that child. It is not unheard of for people in open relationships to have children and even young children and be sexually active with others. But at the end of the day, this is really no one's business but yours and his and hers. And the only conceivable way this could hurt the kid involved is if you're a huge distraction and he isn't there for the kid when he needs to be there for the kid because he's off with you. Or if he's lying and it all comes tumbling out and he and his partner of 12 years break up. Again, one way to reassure yourself that that won't happen, that that isn't the case. And that's a conversation with his partner. Hey, Dan, I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 28-year-old straight cis woman living in the Southeast, and I have got an inquiry that I'd really like your your input on. I've been dating a guy for about a year, and he has a daughter um, whom, when we started dating, was about a year old. And the mother of the child is pretty mentally unstable and has a history of abuse with my partner, mostly around the realms of emotional manipulation, but has sometimes been physically violent towards him and he's pretty scarred and traumatized by this and um, directs all of his attention towards trying to keep her calm um, for the sake of his daughter and for bringing her up in a peaceful environment. I've never met this mother um, at the request of my partner to keep his affairs separate Uh, and I love spending time with his daughter and I've gotten really close with her. Although recently, the daughter, who's now approaching two years old, has started talking. And in her speech, she's been starting to say my name. Um, When the daughter is with the mother, the mother, once hearing my name come out of her child's mouth, she becomes enraged and doesn't want me around her child. This is entirely out of my control, but, you know, the daughter has started talking and some of her words include my name. So I haven't seen my partner's child now in about six weeks. And despite my expressing concern about this to my partner, he keeps making excuses and postponing me seeing her. And it really sucks and it hurts. Prior to daughter saying my name in front of her mom, I'd see, I'd see her a few times a week just for consistency. Um, and it was an important part of our bonding, both with my partner and for the child. So I guess I'm just kind of reaching a threshold where I don't know how much more of this I can take. I'm trying to be patient and supportive with my partner, who I know is in a very difficult co-parenting situation. Um, But this preventing me from seeing his daughter to appease the wrath of his psycho baby mama has kind of gone too far for me. So I'd love to know what you think um, and what you think I should do. Uh, Help me out here, Dan. So your boyfriend's ex-wife is holding this kid hostage. 
and throwing fits to manipulate her ex-husband into what? Never having a relationship with anyone ever again? Never having a girlfriend or a wife in the future who will, of course, be a part of his daughter's life and her daughter's life? Going six weeks without allowing his daughter to see you is a short-term triage-ish solution, but it's not a long-term solution. Because what his wife, his ex-wife wants in the long run is for him never to have another partner other than her. And that isn't in the cards. That's not something that she can request or demand. It points to her being unfit to parent and it, it reveals her to be someone who shouldn't have full custody of this child. If she's going to play these kinds of manipulative games using the child as a weapon against her ex-partner and any future relationship he might be in. So... You need to say to your partner, I'm happy to be the dirty little secret and hide or be hidden for the next, pick your time frame, an additional three months, an additional six months, while you work this out with your ex-wife, which might include working it out in court with your ex-wife. He doesn't have to sue for custody, but he might have to take her to court to have the terms of their custody arrangement hammered out. And it made clear that she is not allowed to use this child or not allowed to demand that her ex never be in a relationship ever again. And she can't demand that his kid not be in the same room with or in the company of his new partner or future partners. It's a tough situation. He's got to stand up to her. Eventually, you have to ask yourself how long you're willing to wait. If that eventually means four years, you're willing to be hidden like this for four years from this girl, then go. If you talk to him and that eventually is another six weeks while he works this out with his ex-wife or gets himself a lawyer who can work it out with his ex-wife's lawyer, then you might want to stick around. Hey, Dan. I am a 30-something bisexual woman on the East Coast. I have had a lot of partners. I have had a few long relationships as well, starting with when I was in high school. And I'm in one right now. I feel like I keep having this issue crop up where whenever I'm in a relationship, my sex drive dies down no matter who I'm with. And when I'm not in a relationship, I have a healthy, like raging sex drive. And it just feels like it kind of fucks with my mind because I go into a relationship feeling like a really sexual person within, with a high sex drive for a woman. I guess I shouldn't say for a woman. Just a high sex drive. And then I, a few months in, or I'm almost a year into this relationship, it's like I, I like having sex, um, but it feels more difficult for me to have partnered sex than um, than sex with strangers or people I just met, which I've done a lot of as well. Um, and it's not like I don't want to have sex, but I just don't want to have sex as much as I did in the beginning. And it's been this way since I was a kid and it always seems to be an issue a little while in because I, my partners are like, what happened to your sex drive? Is this, I feel like this is not abnormal. I'm just afraid this is going to happen to me for the rest of my life. And like, I just find myself wanting to sleep with strangers um, and get out of this relationship, even though it's awesome, because I don't know what else to do. Like Polonia said, 
know thyself. What you know about yourself is that you need newness, that you need strangers, that you need new and exciting experiences, and you need to be with new people on the regular to sustain your libido. You need that kind of excitement. You would also like to be in a committed, stable, loving relationship. You are a listener to this show, so you know that these things are not mutually exclusive, that you can be in a committed, loving relationship that allows for you to seek sex outside that relationship, to have those new and exciting experiences, to be open to that kind of possibility that invigorates your libido. If you're in a relationship, it's entirely possible that if you were with somebody, this guy that you've been with for a year, but you were also allowed to seek sex out with other people, your libido would still be raging and not just raging for those others, but raging for your partner as well. Symbolically, Right now, your partners, when you partner with somebody, when you settle down with somebody, when you commit to somebody, it is the end of something that you enjoy very much, which is new dick. Here he is. He is the end of possibility and adventure and getting with strangers. Because possibility, newness, getting with strangers, strange dick is so crucial to your sense of sexual fulfillment and such a linchpin for your libido that this person symbolizing the end of all of that is going to be a libido killer. So you need to find someone with whom you can have both. And maybe it's the guy you're with now. You need to go to him and tell him who you are. You need to go to, when he says to you, what happened to that woman I met a year ago whose libido was off the charts? You need to tell him, I've noticed something over the course of my adult life. That my libido craters after I've been with someone a while, when I've made a monogamous commitment. And so I want to try something different. I want to be with you, if not you, then my next partner in an ethical non-monogamous relationship where we can love each other and be committed to each other and newness, strange dick, possibility, adventure is still possible for me and new vagina possible for you. And then see what happens. I predict that when your partner no longer symbolizes no longer is the libido-killing symbol of the death of possibility and strange dick and adventures that your desire for your partner will not wane, that your desire for your partner will be sustained over time. And if not, if you attempt this and it doesn't work, well, then know thyself. You are a short-term relationship person. You are not a person who should make a long-term commitment with sex at the heart of it. Maybe you could have a companionate, long-term, stable, committed relationship, and the both of you basically only have sex with other people, or you can be the kind of person who has a serial monogamous, that you have a relationship after relationship after relationship, but you shouldn't allow people to make you know, the reasonable assumption that if you're committing to them, that you are committing for the indefinite future. You should tell people that you get involved with, that you're good for three months or six months, that you're a good girlfriend for the short term, but you're nobody's mate for the long term. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old cis gay male living on the East Coast. Uh, my partner and I have been together for eight years. We met in undergrad and have been inseparable since. I call him my best friend because we, you know, communicate so well and truly care for each other. About four years into our relationship, we opened it up to a third sex partner. From there, we became more comfortable with not only bringing in a special guest, but comfortable with ourselves as a unit. When we became romantic with a third guy, it usually lasts for a few months until we end up becoming very comfortable friends. 
Now, mind you, we are only open with one partner at a time and no one else. We also have a great sex life when it's just the two of us. Having a third guy is mostly for fun, and we enjoy gaining friendship out of it. Basically, we can take it or leave it. My world came crumbling down yesterday as I used my partner's phone to change the song that we were listening to. Scrolling through the open apps to find Spotify, I found two different videos of him him having sex with strangers in our own bed, something I never saw coming. You know, I thought we were, you know, very fulfilled. We communicate everything to each other. He's apologizing massively, and I'm remaining calm and trying to take this step by step. This moment we're in right now is very fragile, and I don't want to jump on any decisions too quickly. Like I said, we live together, and he has been sleeping at his friend's to give me space. He's very apologetic and agrees he needs to seek professional help. My question for you is, where do I go from here? I love him, and throwing away all those years of hard work and companionship feels like it would break me. But also, I don't know how I can have a blind eye to it either. I don't want to resent him. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm on week one of it, you know, just kind of handling and trying to navigate how I feel about it and where we're going to go from here. Well, your 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 call and and the distress that so comes through in in your voice and in, again the circumstance it gives the answer to anybody out there who's wondering whether it's possible to cheat in the context of an open relationship. Of course, it right, is. great. <laughs> open relationships are healthy and functional because there are rules, and if you violate the rules, you've cheated. You know, in a closed relationship, you have sex with somebody else. It's a clear violation of the rules. But a lot of people, you know, most people aren't in open relationships and have no idea how they work. And they just assume that if it's open, anything goes. And that's not true. Right. And that wasn't supposed to be true of your relationship. Agreed. So the question you have to ask yourself is, can you forgive him? And that really depends on what it is you're getting from him, what you're hearing from him about how this happened, why this happened, how often this happened, and whether it's likely to happen again in the future. Because if you've established rules in your open relationship that he can't you to, then you need to rewrite the rules or you need to get out of this relationship if these rules are deal breakers for you. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of people out there in open relationships who used to be in monogamous relationships and then somebody cheated and they decided to stay together. But the person who cheated cop to finally admitted often first to themselves that they were incapable of keeping in a monogamous commitment and therefore shouldn't have made one. And so that rule wasn't a rule that worked for them. And, you know, it created a lot of grief and drama in their relationship that they attempted to honor that rule or live by that rule when they were incapable of doing so. And that's not people failing at monogamy. That's monogamy failing people. Monogamy isn't for everyone. It's not right for everyone. And it may be the case in your relationship that the rules that you've established aren't rules that work for your partner or that he can honor. In which case, the question then becomes, are you willing to rewrite the rules to keep him and to to, to be with him? Basically, to allow for him to do what he did, which is just crazy painful to contemplate, considering. Right. The, viol- the violation and, and the hurt that you've experienced. But that's hurt is comparable to the hurt experienced by so many people out there who are in monogamous relationships and there was an infidelity 
And in the processing and the counseling that the couple got and the healing, they arrived at an open relationship being better. And sometimes in the end, better for both. And they got past it and they kind of had to allow for what had happened to happen in the future, but to happen without it being a betrayal, without it being a violation by rewriting the rules. So this is just me asking you, what are your deal breakers? What rules do you need to, to, to be, feel happy and safe and comfortable in a relationship? Right. Um, and, you know, we actually had, a, had our first discussion last night um, where he just feels that he needs space to work on himself to figure out what this, you know, ball of anxiety and depression that's really been overcoming um, that he hasn't really been able to deal with or really talk to me or speak to me about. So right now that's where we are. You know, I'm giving him wait, that wait. space. So he, he's framing the cheating as him acting out because he's anxious and depressed and he was self-medicating yes. with Dick? Yes. Okay. And that was our discussion last night. So, you know, I kind of just, it, it, he switched the game on me. So, you know, I didn't really have what I planned to speak about there. That makes me suspicious. When someone has done something wrong and they pivot to, I'm the victim here, as a way to shut down the conversation with the person that they victimized. Right. That, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who act out sexually uh, in, in ways that are that are unhealthy and are driven by things like anxiety and depression. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the bar gets set a little bit higher, that that needs to be scrutinized. And I think if you guys, eight years together, that's a long time. If you guys are going to work on this and try to salvage it and there are overlaying or, or, or intersecting mental health issues, you need a counselor. You need a couple's counselor to referee right. these conversations. Because if he said, oh, I'm sad and I'm depressed, Therefore, Dick, don't make my depression and anxiety worse by being mad at me. That's kind of manipulative. He can say, I'm sad and I'm depressed, and I think that's why maybe I did this. Now you talk about your feelings. Now you tell me where you're at. But it doesn't right. sound like that's what he did. It sounded like it was the pivot to you shut up. It was, and, it, you know, and I, was really, <laughs> I was really taken back and just shut down. And, uh, you know, the reason I even answered the phone today is because I'm, I'm home early from work. I couldn't, I couldn't get through the day. Um, I couldn't find, you know, my, I couldn't find that concentration mm -hmm. because I'm feeling the most pain I've ever felt. And that's coming from someone who lost both parents to HIV and AIDS. And I, you know, I dealt with a lot and he was my person. He was my solid, you know, comfort zone. I'm so so I'm just, uh, I'm very, I'm just in shock and it's, it's something that, you know, my friends and close people are telling me, you just have to work through it and, you know, let it happen, feel all the feelings. But those feelings fucking suck, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but you know what? Not feeling those feelings doesn't make them suck less and bottling them up makes them explosive. Right. And it just sucks because all I do right now is I miss him. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want him back into my house. I want him back around so that we could just keep... You know, we can just continue this discussion, this conversation, because we're so open about our, you know, we're very communicative with each other. We, we talk about it all. Mm -hmm. So the, the fact that he couldn't come to me with this really, that's, that was the shock. That was, you know, what really threw me off. You're young. I am 27. And you've been together eight years. How old is he? He's 28. 
Okay, so you've been together since before either of you could legally buy a beer. We, yeah, we were children our first couple of years together. You know, we we're still we're still figuring it out. You know, right. so I, I, you know, I don't even take the beginning of our relationship that seriously because we were, you know, just in college. You know, just figuring it all out and together. I think the conversations so, that you need to have with a couples counselor uh, are a little bit more complicated okay. than I'm anxious and depressed. Therefore, I fucked somebody else. And I'm the real victim here. And you shouldn't make it worse by piling on about your hurt that I caused you because that's just going to make me feel even worse than I did. It's kind of a hostage taking move. I did this because I was sad and depressed. Your anger is making me more sad and more depressed. So you know what that means. I'm likely to do that again. So if you want me to do that again, you can't be mad at me. That's really unfair of him. And I don't think that that's necessarily malicious that he rolled that out intentionally to control you or, or manipulate you that people often when they're in trouble, bullshit comes out of their mouths because they're panicked and they're afraid. And he's probably panicked and afraid of losing you. And this bullshit comes out of his mouth and you need someone who isn't you to call bullshit on him in the moment. You need a referee. You need a couple's counsel. Right. And I would just say, and I want to leave you with this, you know, people who are together from early in their lives, from a young age, there's sometimes this desire to, to flip the table over and, and this sort of need for some autonomy, erotic autonomy. And that can prompt someone who otherwise wouldn't cheat, who really does love you to cheat. I would recommend that you go get a copy of uh, Esther Perel's um, State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. I think it's a really terrific book for, for someone in your circumstance to read. And you should give it to your boyfriend. Get him a copy, too, if you guys aren't living together right now. And you should both read it. Because the first thing she talks about, one of the things she opens with, is that people often cheat on people that they love sincerely. And cheating is not evidence that there is no love. That it's often not about the relationship. It's about the individual. And something they needed to do for themselves. And yes, it was a betrayal and it wasn't okay and it was a violation and it broke the rules. But when you understand that it's not necessarily about you and that it's not proof that they don't love you and it's not that there's anything deficient with your relationship or wrong with your relationship, it puts you in a position where the relationship is likely to survive that infidelity. Dan, you really called at the right time, I got to tell you. <laughs> well, I'm glad I caught you. I- I'm really sorry. And thank you for it. Well, you're welcome. And it's very kind of you to say, particularly in a moment when you're in such pain. Um, but look, you know, either you're going to be 28 and single in a little bit, and that's not a bad thing to be 28 gay and single in the big city can be great. <laughs> right. I didn't right. meet my, right. my husband until I was 30 or you're going to be together with new rules or a, a, a recommitment to the old rules and, and happy and content again. Cool even with this betrayal and this pain in your past. There, there is no long-term relationship without wounds right. and scars. And the, the person who can hurt you the most is the per- new person you love the most. They're the best positioned to, to hurt you in this way. And the right. world is full of couples who got through exactly what you two are facing right now. That's good to hear. Don't succumb to the narrative that an infidelity always means the end. Because couples that got through the infidelity and stayed together usually don't broadcast the fact that there was an infidelity that they got through. We hear about the infidelities that end relationships. We don't hear about the relationships that survived the infidelity. Right. But how you work through it. Right. Right. 
Good luck. I'm so sorry. Dan, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This is a, this is a pleasant surprise. All of, all of the best to you. You too. Hi, Dan. Longtime listener from Southern California here. I've got a question. Listen uh, with great interest on your last uh, Magnum episode regarding uh, the use of PrEP and how guys are using it or not using it and just really you're going with uh, unprotected sex. Uh, what is up with all this prep shaming? I've had guys yell at me because I'm not on prep. I can't go on prep. I'm on chemo. And that doesn't seem to matter to them. And I have such backlash at the, from guys that want to have sex and they want to bear back. And I say, no. And they drop me, which is fine. I, I don't want to feel, I don't want to date somebody that potentially has, you know, my best interest, not in their best interest, which is my health what's the best way to respond to somebody other than just saying, okay, I, when they say, well, you should be on prep. And when I say, can't my chemo, my immune system is shot to hell. I don't know. It's just, it's a weird thing. And, and uh, I was just curious to see what your opinion is. At some point, I'm going to need to start paying JK Rowling royalties for my use of sorting hat as a term. You are in that place that so many other people find themselves in where you tell someone who's interested in you, sexually or romantically, one thing about you, and their reaction tells you literally everything you need to know about them. When you tell guys who are interested in you sexually, who want to get with you, that you're not on PrEP and can't be on PrEP because you're on chemo and your immune system is shot to hell, but you're healthy enough for sexual activity, and they reject you because they will not, will not, will not wear a condom, fuck those guys, or don't fuck those guys, or don't let yourself be fucked by those guys. Those guys have eliminated themselves from consideration, from your consideration, and you shouldn't take them into any further consideration, and you shouldn't waste too much time wringing your hands about them. I know rejection stings, and it hurts, but when someone rejects you for that sort of reason, that's a rejection that you should embrace and run toward. That's not somebody, somebody that selfish and uncaring is not someone you wanted to wind up in bed with for an evening, for an hour, for a lifetime. Fuck that person there. An asshole. And as you click through the rejections from the assholes, you are likelier to find yourself getting an acceptance from someone who is a more appropriate sex partner for you. Someone nice and someone decent and someone kind and someone considerate and somebody willing to roll a condom onto his fucking dick. If that's the only way to get it into your ass. It is ironic how the worm has turned. There was a lot of prep shaming initially when the drug was rolled out. I was guilty of that myself. I reacted negatively to the first study that I didn't think was conclusive. Uh, and now there's kind of emerging in some corners people not on prep shaming. There was some shaming of people on prep. Now there's shaming of people who aren't on prep because so many people really, really don't want to use condoms as if HIV was the only sexually transmitted infection that we needed to worry about. There have been huge spikes in the transmission of syphilis and gonorrhea because people are throwing condoms away because if you're on PrEP or you're already HIV positive and you're taking your meds and your viral load is undetectable, which equals uninfectious, who needs condoms or safety or protection because everything's solved. We don't have to worry about sexually transmitted infections anymore. Yeah, that would be true if HIV were the only sexually transmitted infection that existed or that we needed to worry about. And it's not. There are others that can be very serious and have tremendously serious health consequences, particularly for people with compromised immune systems like you call her. So – Ugh, sorry about that rant. In summation, caller, embrace your sorting hat. 
delete and block anybody who gives you grief about not being on prep and consequently they might have to use condoms. You might have to do something uninsertive uh, when you enjoy each other and avoid anal penetration entirely and click through and block your way to the guys who aren't going to make an issue of the fact that you aren't on prep and everybody else. Yeah. On prep, not on prep. There are other sexually transmitted infections out there that we need to worry about and condoms still provide the best protection from gonorrhea, from syphilis. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female from the East Coast. My husband and I have been together for six years and married for one, and we have a one-year-old beautiful son. So about a month ago, our son handed me our husband's, my husband's phone, and it had a locked photo vault app pulled up. And we had recently made a sex video, and I didn't have a copy, so I opened the app. What I found shocked me to the core. He had raunchy photos of his first cousin on there. I did confront him on this, and he admitted he had been curious about her body and has been for years, and he just happened to find those photos on Instagram, which was true. He doesn't want to act on it, and he says he was disgusted with himself, but I said if he was truly disgusted with himself, he would have deleted them, to which he admitted he probably would have masturbated to the photos again. I know genetic sexual attraction may have a role, but this has taken a huge toll on my self-esteem and trust for him. I'm just asking how I should handle this because I feel so angry, disgusted, betrayed, and jealous. First cousins can get married. 26 states and those marriages are legally recognized in all 50 states. First cousins can get married all over Europe. First cousins can get married in Canada and Australia. First cousins, if they can get married just about anywhere in the world, Certainly a first cousin can lust after a first cousin and jack off or vibrate off about a first cousin without it having to be some relationship extinction level event for their non-first cousin partner. I think you need to chill the fuck out. Your husband is attracted to someone else who happens to be his first cousin and has long harbored this attraction. And yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's a little squicky. A lot of people have a problem with that. There are websites that defend first cousin marriages because of this prejudice and this assumption that there's something incredibly squicky or incesty about a first cousin marriage. And yeah, it is a close familial connection and a little closer than most people are comfortable with. That said, your husband didn't cheat on you. He didn't get with his first cousin. He didn't hit on his first cousin. What you found in that locked photo vault was evidence of some reptile brain shit that you're husband knew was a little squicky and was enjoying privately. And I think you should respect his privacy retroactively and stop shitting your pants about the fact that this was a first cousin that he was lusting after. Charles Darwin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Edgar Allan Poe, Queen Victoria, Albert Einstein, cousin marriages, many first cousin marriages in that list. It's a thing that happens and we should all chill the fuck out about my advice caller, yeah, own your squicky feelings, feel the shit out of your feelings, and ask your husband to delete those pics and stuff it down the fucking memory hole. And my advice to your husband, change the password on that secret photo vault. Hi, I'm calling in response to the Lovecast where you told the caller to absolutely not fuck a Trump supporter, that the pussy is on hold if you support Trump. And I agreed with you when I was listening to the episode until I accidentally fucked a Trump supporter. <laughs> I met someone traveling and we 
had a really lovely kind of extended weekend together. And in the middle, he acknowledged and sort of reluctantly admitted that he had voted for Trump. And, uh, you know, he's a thinking person. He's not a racist or a misogynist. And so it made no sense to me. And my instinct was to, like, pack up my shit and get out of there. But we ended up having some really wonderful conversations about it. And he wrote down a lot of the things that I said. I was able to introduce him to some ideas he just hadn't considered or things he hadn't thought of because he just didn't have access for some reason to some of the information that I was sharing with him. And he shared some ideas with me that I hadn't thought about because I'm looking where I'm looking and he's looking where he's looking. And since then, I've shared a lot of writing with him. I sent him the Ta-Nehisi Coates book, Between Me and the World, so he could think about things from a completely different angle, a book that never would have come to him if it wasn't for me. And if I had just turned around and walked out of the house, we never would have had these opportunities to share ideas. And I think he'll take some of them into his life with him and into his world. So it's not an absolute no in some cases. As a general rule, I don't think anyone should fuck a Trump supporter. And I, in this cultural climate, if I were single out there and dating, I would do my due diligence and ascertain whether someone had voted for Trump and continued to support Trump before I dropped my pants in the presence of someone who could vote for that malignant piece of shit. You say that this Trump supporter that you fucked is a thinking person and not a racist or a misogynist, but he voted for a racist and he voted for a misogynist, which makes him complicit in the racism and misogyny that we've seen just pour forth from the Trump administration. Anyway, you slipped and fell and impaled yourself on a Trump supporter. Weirder shit has happened. People have one-night stands and impulsive sex with people that they know literally nothing about. And I think you did the right thing in the wake of the realization that you had slipped and fallen onto the dick of a Trump supporter. You had a talk with this guy. You tried to leverage his desire to get at your pussy again, to pry his mind open and shove Ta-Nehisi Coates' book in there, to your credit. And maybe you fucked one of the Trump supporters who can be reached through the power of pussy and redeemed through the power of pussy and good for you. Individual results may vary though. I think most people who found themselves in bed with Trump supporters find them not to be of an open mind, not to be people who can be reasoned with or approached, not to be the type of person that you can pry their brain open with your pussy and shove ton of coats in there, but good for you that you seize the opportunity and hopefully he feels terrible about the shit bag he voted for in 2016 and he will Vote Democratic, straight Democratic ticket in 2018. I think you should make that a condition of any future access to your powerful, powerful Tanahasi Coats enabling pussy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21 year old male living behind the Redwood Curtain in Northern California. And after a year and a half dry spell that I spent doing a lot of self exploration and investigation into my previous sexual experiences, I began to enter into relationships while making extensive agreements and constantly checking in and communicating with my partners. I began the practice of asking for consent for everything, from kissing to PIV intercourse, and I have begun every touch relationship since I started dating again with the statement, explicit and enthusiastic consent is very important to me. And I have learned how to ask for my own desires and when told no, to not discuss the subject any further and simply respect my partner's boundaries in that interaction. This was working very well for me, or so I thought. I've been engaged in a three-month-long, non-hierarchical, non-monogamous relationship with a 19-year-old who was my first partner since I engaged in this practice. 
And when we began our relationship, she expressed to me that it is hard for her to say no and that she hates confrontation. I thought I was doing a good job of accommodating this by speaking largely in I want statements and asking direct questions such as, I want to kiss you, can I? I hadn't seen her in a few weeks, and when I ran into her at a music festival, she had an immediate look of extreme distaste on her face. And I read the message, and after a very short conversation, I separated and gave her space and decided that I would wait until she reached out to me to talk to her again. She reached out to me that night and said, I'm so sorry if I was a bitch today, to which I asked her what was going on, if she was okay, and told her that I received a message that she wanted nothing to do with me, that if she would like to separate entirely, I respected that while also telling her how hurt I was by the energy I felt I was receiving her from, receiving from her and the few times we crossed paths at this very small music festival. She apologized profusely, and I told her I needed space to process and would talk to her in a while. Today, I reached out to her, asking if she could talk again, having the intention of renegotiating our agreements and stepping entirely away from touch with her. What I received was a text message that told me that even though I was very insistent on communication and asking her questions, and in the past month I have engaged in activities with her that she has explicitly said yes to, she felt that I was taking advantage of her because I knew she had a hard time saying no, but asked her questions anyway. She told me that it's par probably partly her fault for not communicating to me that she didn't feel like she was in the best position to be making these decisions. She told me that because of this, she is now completely uncomfortable around me, which I respect, and as such, we have agreed to no longer interact. I'm at a loss, Stan, as I've been working really hard to avoid a situation, anything like this, and I feel like a really bad guy right now. How can I communicate more effectively to avoid future situations like this? It really stings that knowing even with my best intentions, I've hurt this other human being. A yes isn't always enough. That's why people talk about obtaining not just the yes, not just consent, but enthusiastic consent. I wonder, you know, I'm, I wasn't there. I don't have a tape. I don't have any video. I can't go to the video and take a look at how you asked for the things you asked for or what her body language is like when she said yes, but women have a legitimate fear of male violence and women will sometimes say yes to a guy because they fear saying no. They fear how he might react. They have a legitimate fear of male violence because men are testosterone-soaked, violent fucking dick monsters and women suffer. And women are also socialized to defer to men. And you were with this girl who told you she has a really hard time saying no and she loathes confrontation and you asked for X, Y, and Z and you sound really articulate and you don't sound quite aggro, but you sound intense. And it may be in the moment, even though she was saying yes, she was feeling no. She has to take some responsibility for giving you a yes when she wanted to give you a no, if that was the case. Unfortunately, if you want to be as woke ass a dude as you claim to want to be, you have to err on the side of overcompensating. You have to err on the side not just of getting a yes, but getting an enthusiastic yes and then double-checking and triple-checking that that yes was truly enthusiastic. And you are only doing things with this person that they would like to do with you. And that may require you to read body language, not just listen for that single syllable, yup, but to take in the look in her eye, her posture, and to assess whether or not you are behaving in such a way that may unintentionally be intimidating. Maybe that's a conversation that she would be willing to have with you. Although it sounds like you might want to leave her the fuck alone and get in touch with a couple of other girls that you've been with and ask them to give you an assessment of in the moment when you're initiating, physically, how do you come across? 
are your moves that you think are sexy or seductive physically intimidating in a way that a woman, some women might respond to positively, might like, but other women, particularly a woman who has a hard time saying no and loathes confrontation, might read in a way that you don't intend to be read, might perceive as pressure, and then might cause her to give you a yes that's less than enthusiastic or given under duress. And a person can experience duress without the other person intending to make them feel duress or intending to coerce them. So yeah, you have really got to make an effort in the moment. And the takeaway from this experience with this woman, if you feel as bad as you claim to feel, is to interrogate your actions with the assistance of, if you have other women that you've been with and you're on good terms with and that you're friendly with, ask them again, as I said, for an assessment. All that said, there's a little bit of nuance in the whole Me Too conversation that I feel is lacking. And that is sometimes people will be overwhelmed by desire in the moment and agree to something that after the fact, they're not so psyched about having done. We talk about women being socialized to defer to men. We also talk about, and we need to talk about, and I will continue to talk about slut shaming. But there's an aspect to slut shaming that we don't acknowledge, which is that People will slut shame themselves. People will feel bad about something that they wanted to do in the moment and did do. And then after the fact, because sex negativity is so powerful of cultural force and slut shaming has such an impact on so many of us and not just women, but also men that after the fact, we will want to let ourselves off the hook by shifting all responsibility for what happened. Even if we wanted to do it in the moment to the other person. Because sex negativity is so powerful and women aren't immune to sex negativity. This is not to say that people haven't agreed to things in the moment under duress that they didn't want to do and they legitimately experienced as coercive and they felt they could give no answer but yes and they are not responsible in a circumstance like that for whatever went down. They are blameless because women have a legitimate fear of male sexual violence and women will say yeah. Because they fear that if they say no, they could be raped or murdered. And guys, that is not a fucking irrational fear. Pick up a newspaper. So in conclusion, dude, I think you're going to have to work a little harder and maybe in the moment dial it back a bit. Maybe you were nervous when you, you recorded your call, but you come across as kind of intense. And if you're this woman, this, this woman that you're with felt that intensity and perceived it as threatening, she might have said, yep. When she meant, nope, she might've said yes. When she, what she wanted to do was get the fuck out of there. And she thought the only way that she could get the fuck out of there was to do whatever it is that you wanted so that you would let her go. And if that's the case, you're going to have to change your approach. You're going to have to alter your games so that you don't harm anyone else and that you don't have to feel bad in the future about interactions with women that go south. And I want to cite here at the end something Laura Kipnis wrote an essay in the New York Review of Books that I thought was smart she, about the Me Too movement in reaction to Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. She said that what we are asking is for men to unlearn all the ways, the toxic ways in which men are socialized, to believe they're entitled to women's bodies, to believe that women are objects. We also, Kipnis said, need to ask women to unlearn the ways in which women are socialized, to defer to men. I think, and I said when I talked about Kipnis' essay on the show previously, that she didn't factor in fear of male violence. Some women are, women are socialized to say yes to men, to defer to men, 
And in the moment, you can say to a woman, why didn't you say no? And she might have been really afraid of saying no, as I've already unpacked at great length here. But we do have to ask women. Uh, but I agree with Kipnis's general point. We're asking men to unlearn the ways in which they've been socialized. We need to ask women to do the same thing. And women need to say no when they feel safe saying no and not defer and be on the lookout just as men need to be on the lookout for those moments when they feel when, when that sense of unexamined entitlement to women's bodies rises within them, they need to watch out for that and, and stamp that out, tamp that down. And women, when they feel the yes coming in a situation, because yes is what you're supposed to say and not in this particular situation. Yes is what you must say for your own sense of safety or security, not to, not to say yes. To say no when and where you can. And so I would say to this woman, if the woman had called about this circumstance, you have a hard time saying no and you loathe confrontation, maybe you're not in good enough working order to be having sex with people that you don't know that well. Maybe you need to have a relationship. Maybe you need to be dating, 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 dating before you get to sex. And you need to be very clear about the fact that you have a hard time saying no and therefore, the negotiation, and everything's a negotiation when it comes to sex, about what's going to go down, what we're going to do, yeah, we're going to take our time. That is going to be a slow roll. We will have a conversation about the things that we might want to do sexually, but not right before we do them. We're going to have that conversation on a Monday and maybe do those things on a Friday. So if I needed to say no in the moment and I couldn't bring myself to, I have an opportunity to say no before we do whatever. So I think the onus is mostly on men who are doing most of the harm, all of the harm, to self-examine and self-correct and make a better, safer world, which men will benefit from too. Some of the onus is on women to say no when you can and where you can and to whom you can. Getting back to you, caller, she might not have felt like you were the kind of guy that she could safely say no to. And if that's the case, that's the kind of guy you are in the moment, if that's how you come across intimidating, unintentionally perhaps, physically coercive seeming, you got to fix that. Hey, Dan, I'm a straight 31-year-old male from the West Coast. Two and a half years ago, my best friend who lives six hours away from me separated from her emotionally and physically abusive husband after 10 years of marriage. A two-year legal battle ensued, and at the end of last year, she was finally granted a divorce, full custody of their three children, and a three-year domestic violence order against her ex. Shortly after the separation, my best friend and I, have never been, having never been single at the same time, tossed around the idea of being more than friends. One thing led to another, and we found ourselves in an unofficial relationship for a couple months before facing the reality that she was not anywhere near ready to be in one. So we went back to being best friends. A year and a half later, last fall, we tried again and ended up with the same outcome. She's not ready. After living through a decade of abuse, she feels like she never wants to be in a relationship again. Logically, she knows that might be rational, but that's how she feels right now. I can't 100% say that feeling will ever go away. So we're back to being best friends again. Our predicament is this. I waited for over two years to see if anything is going to happen between us, which was 100% my choice. She never asked me to wait. And I'm at a point where I need to move on and start dating again. But while she is not ready to be in a relationship, she also can't stand the idea of me being with someone else. But then again, she wants me to be happy and live my life. The catch-22 that would lead most people to say the solution is simple, cut off the friendship. 
is absolutely not an option, and we are confident we can make our relationship work whether we end up together or not. My other issue is I'm worried that as I ease into relationships with other women, I'm going to unfairly compare them to my best friend and inevitably come up with flaws that lead to the demise of a relationship that otherwise would not have ended. Also, do I have a moral obligation to tell women I date that my best friend and I have a romantic history? What if my girlfriend asks? Do I tell the truth or lie for the sake of my girlfriend's peace of mind? My last question is, do you have any sense of what it takes for an abuse survivor to get back to a place where they can be in a relationship again? Do some never get back to that place? I fear that if my best friend does, she may realize she's ready sooner than later, like maybe a year from now as opposed to three years. And by throwing myself back into the dating pool, I'm preemptively closing the only window of opportunity we'll ever have to be together. I know that's totally hypothetical, but it's a feeling I can't shake, and it makes me feel like I'm not ready to date, even though I want to. Like I have this dark secret right off the bat, and every relationship I get into is doomed before it begins. Aside from that, if you have any other advice for me and or my best friend, I'm all ears. I feel like I never want to be in a relationship again. I just got out of a serious relationship, or in your best friend's case, an abusive relationship. Uh, I'm too busy right now, and I need to prioritize work. These are things that people say that can be true. These are also things people say to be kind to someone that they are dumping because they're not interested in being in a relationship or a romantic relationship with that person. You have to get on with your life. You have to get out there. You have to date. You have to let your friend feel her feelings about you dating other women. If that's going to give her a colossal sad, it gave you a colossal sad when she dumped you essentially. And if your friendship is going to survive and thrive, it needs to be a friendship that allows you to see other women, to have romantic relationships with other women and to make commitments to other women. If your friend is not ready to make that kind of commitment to you and your friend is telling you she may never be ready to make that kind of commitment to you, it's perfectly within your rights and I don't think it's irrational or crazy for you to hang on six months or a year and then see how she feels before you begin to seriously date anyone else. But you can't put your life on hold eternally, especially when you take into consideration that what she told you is what a lot of people will say to someone that they don't want to be with ever, but they don't want to hurt. I'm not ready for a relationship right now. It's on us when we hear someone say that to do a simultaneous slash likely translation, which is I don't want to be in a relationship with you. Not that I don't want to be in a relationship with anybody ever. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I get calls and letters all the time from people who were told I'm not ready for a relationship right now and believed it, took it at face value, and are devastated when the person who said that to them gets into a relationship with someone else in six months or a year or a week. I'm not trying to pour salt into your wounds. I'm sure, it sucked to be dumped by this person that you've carried a torch for for so long, but you got to get on with your life. You got to move on from this relationship, if not this friendship. You guys can salvage this friendship and make it work. And you need to be honest with the women that you date in the future, that you briefly dated your best friend and it didn't work out, if indeed it doesn't work out and you guys aren't together romantically six months or a year from now. Because that's just a fact. And you don't want to be with someone that you have to hide that sort of thing from. And you can't be with someone who isn't mature enough to handle that. You can't be with someone who's so insecure or so jealous that they're going to freak the fuck out at their boyfriend or their husband whenever he gets a text or gets on the phone with or has lunch with someone he used to date who's still his very close friend. You don't want your intimacy with your close friend to crowd out the kind of intimacy that a partner has a right to expect and a right to really the best of. But you don't want to be with somebody who's so small and selfish and insecure that they can't allow you to have a really close intimate friendship with someone 
that you used to date because that's the kind of friendship you're going to have with this woman going forward if you aren't together. And you want a woman who's on board with that? Otherwise, if you date somebody who makes that a problem for you, can you deal with that for 30, 40, 50 years? Being raked over the coals constantly because of your connection with your ex? Just put it out there. Sorting hat shit. Put it out there. And if they can't handle it, they're gone. And good. Not right for you. Hi, Dan. This is about the woman who gained 50 pounds in your last episode. Um, I think your advice is good. And I think doing going to the gym with your partner and cooking better meals with your partner and stuff is all good advice. But honestly, if this person is someone who's had anorexia and who has gained that significant amount of weight in a year and a half, I think it's a little unfair to put that kind of pressure on her, like to just make some adjustments to her diet and gym and she can lose weight. Obviously, she probably knows all of this. Um, this is, sounds like the kind of thing that she should probably work out with a therapist or a nutritionist. I know that stuff can be expensive, but there are ways that you can find it more cheaply or find people on a sliding scale. I just think that sometimes for people who really struggle with weight loss, I think it can be easy to just tell them, well, okay, like you just got to eat healthier and go to the gym. And they know that. Um, and especially if you've had eating disorders, this is the kind of thing that you probably need outside help with to keep you on track and to give you advice and stuff. I think it might put a lot of pressure on her and her boyfriend if she's coming to him and saying like, yeah, stop cooking the pasta and I'll take off the 50 pounds. 50 pounds is a lot of weight. Hi, Dan. Just wanted to give some feedback about that caller who was concerned about her boyfriend not wanting to fuck her after she gained 50 pounds in a year. And I really thought that you missed the mark there, Dan. Um, first of all, she should really check in with her primary health care provider just to make sure nothing physically is going on with hormones or something because 50 pounds in a year is a lot of weight. But it sounds like she's in the throes of an active eating disorder. Um, she was anorexic. She then was basically starving herself and doing extreme dieting right before she met her boyfriend. And now it sounds like she's binge or emotionally eating. So it doesn't sound like just cutting back on fettuccine Alfredo is going to do it. She really needs to seek help for her mental health. And hopefully her boyfriend will be there to support her to see what else is going on with her physical and mental health. That takes precedence over whether or not he wants to fuck her. Hi. I was calling for the woman in episode 613 whose boyfriend battered her during a drunken blackout episode. I was calling because I totally agree with everything Dan said, and I wanted to add two little weights to the crushing burden of evidence that he presented. During your call, he said that your boyfriend didn't remember the incident because he was blackout drunk, and yet he does remember that your hysteria prompted it. I guess he remembers your being hysterical, and then the tape cut out right before his behavior pretty terrible. Also, I'll point out at the beginning of the call, you said you haven't been happy in your relationship for a year. The end. Scene. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. There's something else we want you to give us, and that is your homemade amateur, hilarious, funny, beautiful, compelling porn. Go to humpfilmfest.com and click on submit to find out how you can be a porn star in a movie theater for a weekend without having to be a porn star on the internet for all eternity. Again, go to humpfilmfest.com, click on submit, and make yourself and your friends and your lovers a big part of my next dirty little porny film festival. humpfilmfest.com slash submit.
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jesse Kramer on Instagram. He is smart. He is not on Twitter. At Gaby underscore Giraffe. That's G-A-Y-B-Y underscore Giraffe at Instagram. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.